can just talk. Okay. We I'll, just talk. Okay. And you can say whatever Fuck the hell you want, okay. man. Um, that's the whole deal because a lot of this stuff is just completely canned. All right. And we just wanted people with stories, you know. All right. Um, but, uh, so wait, what were you saying? Um, I got a lawyer to try to straighten out the shit from God Make Me Funky, right? Right. And the st I remember the story with that one was that the beat, that was the one where you set up the drums and the, and the snare came off. The snare broke. Right. The snare and, broke. That's right. And so you're going this... Boom. Right? Tom Tom. Yeah. Totally. And David Rubinson is in there waving us to keep playing because I was freaking right. out, right? Totally. And then he goes like, I go in there and I went, well, for the, the, the fucking thing was on Tom Tom, right? Right. And he goes like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, don't worry about it. So they take my snare and they refasten the snares. I fix the snares. They put a microphone in a garbage can, right? In a wastebasket, right. a metal wastebasket. Right. And, uh, and uh, played the track to my snare drum, and so every time the backbeat would hit, it would it trigger would, the snare. Yeah, but it was an awful sounding snare, and the hip hop cats loved it. <laughs> and you couldn't get any of the ghost notes, so half the beat is missing. missing you know what right? I mean? Like yeah. anyway, so you were like going and all of a sudden, yeah, totally, totally, yes, and 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 that's awesome. Yeah, it's funny as hell, and, and, but as it turns out, if unless this lawyer is full of bullshit, I think I'm on 64 million units. Oh my God. No, this is true. I, I mean, wow. I'm, we're trying to find out if it's true. Right, right. But it's probably pretty damn true. Wow. It's somewhere between one unit and 64 million. Right, but it could, dude, hey, with Spotify, dude, you could have like $12 by the end of the year. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if I get that 12 bucks, I'm buying a house. I'm sorry. You dig? I you, of course, yeah, of man. Course. I mean, that's $12. And a big one, too. Oh, hell yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> But anyway, so that's my latest. We have a lawyer oh, well, that's and bloody bloody blue one. That's so, good, man. So, I mean, those guys should have... Those guys know music, man. The guys like... A lot of those guys that I worked with, you know, back, quote unquote, in the day, like yeah. 20 years ago... Those hip hop guys, they knew music well. They knew who you right. were. They knew who Bernard Purdy was. They oh. knew who Zig was. They knew they know all these people. And I know a lot of those guys. They're good guys. And I think that if they were given a chance by their management or their lawyers, Whoa. they would have come to you guys, look, I need to give you this publishing on these songs. But I don't I just don't think they knew how any of that stuff worked and they were taken advantage of by their Indeed. own people and ultimately yeah. you guys lose out and you guys were really the bedrock for that right. sound in a lot well, of ways. Well, like know, I said in, in Vibe, more than a lot of ways. Yeah, in in Vibe magazine I said, well, they asked me, well, how do you feel about being one of the most sampled hip hop drummers in hip hop music? And I said, well, I never really have played a hip hop gig. Right. At that time I hadn't and I said, I dug the cred, but I'd rather have the bread. <laughs> And those now motherfuckers didn't print it. Wow. They were, Mike's really doing fine. Free, free yeah, it was stuff. like... It was, yeah. yeah. They, anyway. they, they took the Eddie Haskell approach. They step. took the Eddie Haskell yeah, approach. Well, they did. Dude, I remember when we were on the road, because you really, in a lot of ways, coming up in the Bay Area, you really, like all the music that I heard when I was a little kid was the music that you and your contemporaries were playing yeah, right. yeah. when you were in your 20s. Yeah. Like when I was eight or nine, ten years old, you know, I'd go to Provo Park or uh, MacArthur or to Grand Lake, and it would be wow. your guys, yeah. guys I'm sure you played with back then, playing music. And so when I finally, when our paths finally crossed, like I think when I was like a 26, 27, right. and then it was just like instant hookup, because you just had all this knowledge that I felt was like, that, that was like the language that I grew up with, but I didn't really quite know how to speak it. So you kind of were like, for me, like a funk and jazz linear, and, and and the shuffle, the the serious real shuffle that you play, that stuff 
just scared the bejesus out of me. And I had to, I just, it was a <laughs> never ending, you know. I'm still uh, trying to process. get all that stuff together. Yeah. You well, never stop. Yeah. Well, you, thank you God know, for that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, well, I think it's regional. And that was our language from the Bay Area right. based on all the stuff that all of us have heard, just like all the stuff you've heard. Right. Including me and Paul and those guys who are in the mix there somewhere and Gaylord yeah, and yeah, whoever was sure. around. Gaylord you know what Burks. I mean? Great. Yeah. Time. Yeah. There was a guy out there named Sam Cox. I don't know if you knew him. He was no. a kunga drummer, and and he and he played trap drums, and he couldn't even roll. And I refused to sit in. He was so funky when he played. <laughs> oh my god! So where was that? Was that like Esther's orbit room? No. Or? It, well, no. Uh, I'm sure he played there, but it was the Black Knight, right off of Broadway. Okay. On Upper Broadway in the 20s somewhere. Gotcha. The club there gotcha. called the Black Knight. And, and we're it, like late 60s now, right? That was uh, 1970. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, Gaylord played the Black Knight and so did I. It was a very cool club. And you could have like an organ group in there and play shuffle blues, some swing right. and jazz right. kind of stuff and funk for days. Every, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it was an innovative period, meaning, you know, all the drummers, all of us were trying to change it up. You know what right. I mean? Like it was a, uh, some kind of a war cry that was going on in the area. You know about it, you know. Oh, no, of course. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was an interesting time. I'm still yeah. having, I'm still working based off that experience. Right. I'm still playing based off. Yeah, that. but that's totally valid because, you know, I was talking with someone the other day about people my age were just on the cusp of, of being able to still kind of be creators in a way and understand what creating right. was about. But now there's so much of this kind of jazz education and even like funk education to some extent that you know the younger generation they're kind of by proxy being turned into recreators as opposed to creators and the thing is is that when you and paul and all those guys i'm sure you were uh in with the sly and the family stone guys and the I Tower knew those Power guys, guys you were creating that right yeah, at that time yeah, right yes and it's hard for me especially now i mean i haven't lived in the bay area in almost 20 years you know right. of course every place changes right right but what was it that feeling of like there was something in the air i mean i yeah. know that's a corny thing to ask no but, it's I mean, exactly what was it like? Because I want to know personally. It was you know? like you know what? Because I always wondered. Yeah, it was like there was something in the air. It was there. There seemed to be you know how every there was a pocket of understanding of like-minded people mm -hmm. that were interested in funky music, rhythm and blues, blues and jazz, and melding them all together. Mm -hmm. Nobody was thinking let's be innovators or let's. Uh, we were all thinking along uh, those lines which came from Clyde Stubblefield, Bernard right. Purdy and Chabo and Zig right. and Zig too and right. yeah and and uh, and and then some jazz cats and uh, Tony Williams of course right. Elvin Jones you know all of right. that was in there and Philly Joe Jones for me I'm a little older than some of the guys that started with Tony so I came from Max and Philly so I brought some Roy Haynes actual proof is like Roy Haynes meets me meets right uh, Clyde meets uh, I don't know who all yeah, you know yeah. Elvin with some whoever no I don't know sure, something sure, sure. something like this and and uh, um, uh, yeah it was an understanding and it was also a camaraderie mm -hmm. it was like a, a club that we belonged to and you had to understand this thing to be in the club or be taught it somebody right. had to tell you right and if you could cop it then you were in, in we and we wore it like a badge of honor yeah. Like, yeah it was great and it said and it just stunk <laughs> of the raiders in oakland and right. east bay oh wow. you know what i mean and we were and then when we got with herbie we brought that paul and i did and the tower of power of course was already right. out there uh larry graham's another one right and uh, um it was kind of like uh we were so proud we were signifying all the time with this thing and right. i remember i played these beats of mine <coughs> In front of Louis Belson and oh yeah, and Shaughnessy, and <clears throat> also in front of like Max Roach at the oh, jazz wow. festivals and all, and a bunch of great jazz drummers of the older guys that are older than me, and they loved it, man. Of they were like they, did. they were they yeah. were like how the hell they didn't even know how I did it. They yeah. thought it was some secret. They couldn't understand it. <laughs> and I show a couple of guys and it's wow. how easy it was. And they'd be like, "You're it was like a paradiddle," and then you'd fuck around right. with it, you know. Yeah, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling. It's a feeling, thing, you know. Oh, and, yeah. and if you have that kind of, you know, it's like one of those things where 
you know, it's if you grew up listening to that <coughs> kind of thing, stacks. which exactly stacks, you know, and you grew up with the Al Jackson. What was the other guy's name? Grimes that played on that stuff. <coughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. But I don't know. You okay? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So if you grew up listening to that, then it was. But but from what I remember, the stories you were telling is that you your dad worked on the railroads right. in some capacity. So when you were before you settled in the Bay Area. <coughs> Weren't you in Texas and a few other places? I was. Georgia, and Virginia, Georgia, New Orleans, and Pittsburgh. Wow. Okay. So when you were basically like in your formative years, you were in those places. I wasn't. And my father took me. My father was a drummer and not a very good one, but he, uh -huh. there was always a drum set in, right. in the house. He always listened to jazz, and by that I mean big band and and uh, you yeah. know Winoni Harris and Caledonia yeah. and all this. This this was his drinking music. He loved the blues. There's good rocking tonight. Yeah, Winoni there you Harris, go. Right? That's yeah, right, yeah, Roy yeah. Brown. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, he was into all that stuff. And, right. And uh, and he, so there was always a drum set there. So I was a child drummer, and I could play like Gene Krupa pretty good at four or five. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt. Yeah, it it, it it all my stuff made sense. It was the Tom Tom thing, and so he would take me to nightclubs. And I'd play like a sing, sing, sing drum solo, uh -huh. and and and, uh, and he'd pay the drummer or buy the band to drink, and he did this and this, and then we discovered Charlie Parker together accidentally. Wow! Yeah, we bought an Art Blakey record only because there was a drum set on it. And when I heard Art Blakey, it changed. I changed from Gene Krupa to right. Art Blakey. I tried, right. You know, I went yeah, that 20 way. Twenty years. Yeah, 20 totally. Years. Yeah. Yeah, and I was only eight or nine when this wow. happened, and I wow. and I started to go into the other jazz drummers, and then we started to try to understand what they called progressive jazz in those days. And I got to, later on. I got to Dizzy, and you know, all the guys, everybody. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like. Just like you did, you know. I mean, you can play anything too. You're like I am. You're like it, and and I think when we were young, yourself included, nobody used the term versatile. It was called making the rent. Yeah, you know <laughs> exactly. It wasn't yeah, like well, yeah. he can play Latin and he yeah, can play yeah. jazz and he can. You yeah, had to sure. make the rent. Sure, of course. So you course. had to kind of be good at everything, sorta. Decent, yeah. Decent. I'm like, I, yeah. I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I if if you couldn't find anyone else to do a bebop gig. I would do it and yeah, it wouldn't be bad. You could do it. But there's a lot of other people who are way better at it than oh, I would ever be. Me who too. enjoy it more than I do. Right. It's not that I don't enjoy it, but you know, it, we all have some type of a, yeah, the, a, a, an affinity for something that, and, right. and you spend your, maybe your whole life trying to figure out what that is. Well, you like, figure it like out, the time, you have to not be embarrassed about well, it. Well, it's like the time you were going to be a musician and you came to my house and I gave you the garden shears and you just and, and the rake and the and, and the edger and that I became so at home oh you just it, it were it. brilliant and I then mean, my, my lawn career was, was long <laughs> no but uh, but uh, yeah I feel the same way like I was having a discussion with a great drummer last night and he said and he doesn't play as modern as I do but my modern thing is already 40 years old. Right. I mean, modern right. for me is Joe Chambers and of this course. type of thing, of Jack course. T. Jeanette, you know, and, my, and uh, me and Lenny White and yeah. blah, 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 blah. So, uh, and, and he said to me, well, it would be dishonest if I play, you know, and I thought, yeah, he's right. 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 It would be dishonest yeah, if yeah. I tried to play a Latin gig and pretended I knew what right. was going on. Exactly. I, yeah, sure. I'd get busted, but if they couldn't find anybody else, I could get the band through the gig. Exactly. You know? yeah, totally, totally. You know? But you know what you were telling me about your dad and, and this oh. awesome gig where you somehow ended up on a gig with Jimmy Reed, which I think is, is kind of, that's something straight out of like, really? Well, what? you know, it was really easy to do that in those days because I worked at a club uh, in Texas and uh, Albert King, Albert Collins, uh, who are these guys? Freddie Sam King, probably. Freddie King, def definitely Freddie right. King. San Jose, right. Sensation, Just Pickin'. Yeah. Uh, 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 I can't think, Sam and Dave, I said that already. And right. definitely Jimmy Reed. And right. uh, um, I worked steady in this club. And they, I, I, in those days, I, I was, uh, there weren't many jazz drummers that could play good funk. Right. There still aren't many. And but in those days it was real bad. Right. But they could play Horace Silver kind right. of funk, but right. not James Brown. And because exactly, exactly. I could play James Brownish kind of funk because that yeah. was my high school music. Sure, sure. So I knew how to tune the drums and how to get and I listened I loved all of that of music. Course. You know yeah, I, yeah. and 
on those days. And girls like that and, beat. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and this was the name. And also, it was on the AM radio. It was on your car right. radio. I don't even good. think we had FM. No, not then. So, not then. Not until the late 60s, right? Yeah, and man, all we heard was soul music. We, nobody, I hated the Beatles, and I like right, them right. now, but I right, didn't right. like any of that. Of I was course, like, because, yeah. you know, it would if you played in soul bands, you usually had a horn section. The clubs could afford it in those days. Well, of course, we didn't make much money, but, um, uh, and it was almost like playing with a big band or a jazz band. There was something sophisticated right, about it. At the right. same time, you could get real greasy. So um, when the English Revolution came in, if that was, or that's what they call it now, I guess, the Beatles, the Cream, all that stuff, right. it knocked all of us guys that were playing soul music out of work, so we mm -hmm. were pissed off. And right. I didn't like how those guys played. Right. Right, I was right. still trying to be a player, if you will. Yeah, well, and I think those guys also, it's easy to hate on them because they had so much success. But those guys were <laughs> really in a vacuum, I think. Yeah. Just like they didn't have a real connection to the music, which you were living and breathing. Right. And so the, the filter through which they returned it to you mm. was probably there was a lot of creative stuff in it. But yeah. the stuff that was important to you wasn't really in it. it wasn't those they weren't really playing the blues, they weren't really grooving, right. but they did have some great <clears throat> ideas, they did write yeah. some great songs, you know, there was oh, all but to your standards, they were not making it. Yeah, they were not to my right. standards they were not making it. And like, you know, I'm cool now, of course that was a long time ago, but but uh yeah, it didn't sound like the music like we worked so hard on trying to be funky and yeah. we talked about it and all our friends would talk about where to hide the feels just a simple feel you would try to not end on one right right you know yeah, nobody used words like pocket nobody used words like fill nobody used the words like we're gonna play funk right they just say hey mike play something funky right and right, usually right. that meant play something like cannonball right really or wow. and then pretty soon james brown become more and more popular right. and we started doing that yeah and it was still kind of like the stuff we grew up on you know, there was still a connection. There was it. still a connection, right. yeah, a heavy connection. Yeah, you know, all of those drummers with James Brown could play a shuffle and put you on the floor. Oh, man. totally, totally, Shit. totally. That that uh, Kansas City on that uh, live yeah. James Brown with yeah. his double field just playing that. Is that quite? Oh, from God, what I hear, ridiculous. it's ridiculous. Hit me, yeah. band, and it's at a hot, very, very oh. fast tempo too. You um, know, one time that song was playing. And I went to play in uh, Dimitri's, what is that, the Jazz Alley in Seattle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the waitress said, and I've been listening to that album over and over again. You know how you, in, at times sure. in your life you get stuck on one CD of and course. you listen to yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I listened to it for three months till I wow. hated it. Wow, right, right. But, uh, I never hated it, but I got to, but I was staying in, uh, and the waitress said, you could stay at my house because they didn't have a room ready. You know the little place sure, that they yeah, gave you? yeah, the condo. The condo, so it wasn't ready. And she said, well, I'm leaving town. You could stay at my house. And I have a great apartment, and she did. And I think I might have told you this story. No. This uh, is when I went in there, and she gave me the keys, and I went to lay down. And this is after a four-day hard touring, you know, I think I was flying, and I was just sure. beat to hell. Of course. And we had a sound check, and, blah, 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 and I went to lay down. For three hours, and I was like, you know, when you're on the road, uh, I've seen you and all my friends like this, and you're like, you're actually like this. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're just so tired. You're oh, ready yeah, to yeah, cry. You're, you're ready you're to done. cry. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're done. done. Yeah. And I finally went, oh my God, and laid down in this comfortable bed, and I heard zzzz, and I looked, and they, she had white shades, you know, the. Uh, the, the oh, yeah, Venetian. Venetian yeah. And there was a big, about. A seven-inch-long yellow jacket with a big belly like a bomber, and I was like, "Oh my God!" And it turned into a war. I took a big newspaper and I smashed the Venetian blinds, and I fucked her Venetian blinds up, and 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 he got away. And then he's like, <laughs> and then I hit him with the paper, and he was so thick, he was like, "Bonk!" I'm like, "Bonk!" And 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 he fell into a, a weaved rug, a red. Oh yeah, yeah. And I couldn't find it. Dude, what I did you hear. take before? Just just uh, uh, exhaustion. Exhaustion. Like, yeah, that's all yeah, it was. Yeah, that's all you need. And yeah, that's all I needed. Yeah. And and and, yeah. and he was in the rug, and I had my shoes off. Yeah. And and I was afraid I was going to step on him, but he got away. And anyway, I cornered him in the kitchen, 
I had to kill him because yeah, he was going to bite yeah, me, man. Yeah. It's gonna it sting was me. war. It was it war. Was war. He wasn't and it was like on his I, side. No, and I'm ex and I'm exhausted, so it's like a twilight zone. Exactly. I can't find he him. He kept he getting bigger and bigger. Oh yeah, it was, he grew legs. He, he grew. Yeah, face. and he was he was talking to me, <laughs> and I put a glass over him, on the counter, and then I put a paper underneath yeah, the glass. Yeah. And I started to take him in the bathroom to flush him down the toilet. And when I looked at the glass, he was crawling up the side of the glass to my hand. <laughs> and I'm like, ah! And I broke the woman's glass and he got away again. I finally oh, got him. Oh my and then God. as soon as I killed him, it took an hour. And I laid down and I'm like, ah, oh, oh my God, how could this happen? I got to play. I'm not going to be able to play. I can't even think. Yeah. The phone rang. Time to go to work. <laughs> ah. Of course. But dude, tell me about the Jimmy Reed gig, because this gig, your story you told me a few times that it really rang in my head. Well, you know? Jimmy Reed uh, uh, um, came to uh, a gig, and we we're going to play with Jimmy Reed, and he came to a gig, uh, and uh, he also, I'm not going to say who, but he also puked on a, a friend of mine's brand new microphone back in those days. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't on that gig, but I was on another one where he was... Uh, uh, he was, I, poor Jimmy Reed, I, I don't know, he was so intoxicated. Right, I mean, that was his milieu. His, yeah, yeah. His sickness, unfortunately. Indeed, yeah, he was, yeah. I love Jimmy Reed. I oh, still man. listen to him oh, all the time. Oh, I still listen to Going to Virginia with a great breast. What a breath. feel, oh, man, my what a God. feel. Bright Lights, Big City. Oh, oh you know, yeah. That's poetic. It is know? poetic. That's, it is yeah, poetic. Yeah, totally. And, and, uh. So we're playing in some little, uh, it's like a dirt floor picnic tables joint in Texas. Right. And it's about, there's no air conditioning. It's summertime. I'm very young and I have a suit on. It must have been 400 degrees in there. <laughs> and do they have a barbecue going inside the place as well? Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> and yeah, no, it's inside the place, oh, the barbecue. No. And so he, he rolls up to the stage door, drunk as a skunk, uh -huh. in a white Oldsmobile. And he's got his wife with him. And she brings him up on the stage, and she's mad at him. And he gets up there, and oh, and he's about an hour late. And this is Texas. Oh, yeah, this is a brown bag joint. Right, right. And they'll kill you in there. You right, know, I mean, right. this is fucking Texas. You yeah. Know? And so he gets on the stage. Finally, he's so drunk, we can't even communicate with him. We don't know what we're going to play, but it shouldn't right. be too tough. I mean, how know? old are you, do you think? This uh, maybe 16. Maybe 16. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 16 or 17. In those right, days, right. nobody ID'd you. None of this... Right technical right I, I mean like you you made an interesting point earlier about the schools right we could go into that later if we have time but this story is kind of a classic so <clears throat> he gets out on the he, he anyway to cut to the chase he finally makes it to the stage it must be an hour or more late people are pissed off right and right. there's a little ragtag curtain that's closed you know and and then he starts he's we're going to follow him into this tune i don't know what it was he seemed unable to speak, and, and he starts like, uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Reed, and this little curtain. There's a guy back there, with like, a, <laughs> like, like opening the shades in your hotel room, except it's funky. He's opening the shade, and Jimmy Reed's like, <laughs> and he falls straight down on his face. And his guitar is underneath him, and he smashes his guitar, and you can hear all this. If I remember, I think it was, yeah, totally, you know. And he's done. It's over, man. And the audience is getting f crazy. I'm afraid they're going to kill him. Yeah. And I'm just a young kid. And I'm like, close the curtain. Close the curtain. So the guy closes the curtain, but the curtain closes behind him, and half of his body is out there in the audience. So then I, you can see his feet. I mean, he's out cold, man. And then, and then I said, drag him in. Drag him in. I didn't want them to hurt him. Yeah, yeah. And there was this redneck bass player on the gig and uh, and he's and he, a big tall dude and he went leave him lay <laughs> no, with a question man. at the end like leave him lay totally yeah, leave just him like lay. I, leave him lay like that you know and i was like oh my god i'm going back to california this cat anyway and nothing happened and he came right. the next night and he played good and everything was oh so cool. you ended up doing a whole gig with him a then. couple of nights oh nice yeah yeah it was cool nice, i mean nice. you, in those days i think you play, played maybe a week in a club that's how i got to play with all those guys i was never in their bands right, right. i just was in the house band, sure sure you know? but that's an experience though. oh it well was who a, else did you did you play that you can remember jackie lee a guy that did the duck jimmy hughes who had a hit out called steal away oc smith oh oc smith yeah lawanda wow. page um lawanda page oh 
oh, holy mackerel! I you must have some serious stories about uh, her. I, did I tell you any of that? No, no. I'll give you a quick one. Okay. okay since we're doing this, I'll give you a quick one. Uh, okay, uh, I, it was under the umbrella of the Red Fox show, and it was Skillet, Leroy, and Lawanda. Now Skillet showed up on the Red Fox TV show several times. Okay, okay. But these people were really popular at the Lamert Theater in in uh, L.A. and all of this stuff in uh, Lamert Park, and they did right. all. And this was on the so-called Chitlin Circuit. This was actually in California. And I joined the band. It was an organ trio, and I, it was a jazz trio. Right. And these guys knew me and said, come play with us, man. I was out of work, yeah. you know, and a young guy. And I said, okay. So I like to drink with LaWanda Page, and uh, she told me a whole bunch of crazy stories. And she was, and it was a very X-rated show. It was unbelievable right. what they did. That's what I heard, oh yeah. Oh, my God. Like you can't really believe like it. Like you can't believe it. Yeah. Like, but Red Fox was kind of, I mean, I don't want to say comedic genius, but he definitely... I've heard some of his routines, and I'm kind of blown away by his timing. Ridiculous. He's good. He was he's really, ridiculous. really good. Right? And these people were, he was great. Yeah, and they say that by the time he did his show, although there was some great stuff in that, that he was really over the hill at that point, the TV show. And the, the earlier stuff was really the stuff. My father had all the earlier records. Okay, okay. And they were like on, I forget the name of this label. But it was an X-rated label. Wow! I don't think they even called it X-rated. They were just dirty records. Right, right, right. And uh, so and I'm he, sorry. Tell me about the show then. Well, anyway, what did she say? What did she well, say? Well, so she was funny as hell, and she would just tell me all of these pearls of wisdom, if you will. And I, I always liked to drink when I was young. I loved drinking, and I could handle it. You know, I could drink an amazing amount at 16. You know, I guess right. we all could right. in those days. So. Uh, I was about 18 or 19, actually, and uh, uh, we were playing in a place called Mr. D's Cadillac Row in Sacramento, and uh, we were getting ready to go to Vegas, and um, there was a, a another person you, that you could Google that's interesting that was on the show called Sir Lady Java. Sir Lady, Sir Lady Java. Java. Right. Now, Three now, words. Sir Lady Java. Indeed. All right. Okay. Now, now, obviously, I, unbeknownst to me, because I was green as hell, I'd had right. a lot of experience, but never a female impersonator before. Right, right. Even though I'd played with Carol Dodo and all those people on uh -huh. Broadway a little bit in San Francisco at the Condor Club, right, but I never, right. I don't know. Yeah. It didn't cross my mind, this type of thing. So Sir Lady Java was gorgeous. And I thought it was a chick. Uh huh. And 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 <laughs> she, more power to her. Yeah, and yeah. she danced in front of my bass drum at night, and she had ass and beautiful legs. I had no idea this was a guy. How I could not know this, being called Surly. I never. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> you were very green. Well, it's like da in America, uh, uh, the dawn's early light in America. What, what, uh, right. Oh, say can you say? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I always thought, who's Donzer Lee? <laughs> I swear to God, Charlie, isn't that awful? Until I was about 24 and I went, oh, Dawn's early life. What the fuck's the matter with me? All right, well, check this out. Okay. So, all right. So, so what did she tell you? Okay, so she gave me all kind of pearls of wisdom. So one right. time, so I, I said, listen, Lawanda, can you get me a date with Java? I just think she's beautiful. And I'm in love with her, you know, as a kid. She goes, and she says, here's exactly what she said. Quote, you ain't want none of that, Michael. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes like, that's a dude. I got pissed off. I got mad. I'm like, that's not a dude. That's outrageous. <laughs> and, and she goes, think about this now. Sir Lady Java. I've known Java for 20 years. She's a, she says to me, that's a dude dressing as a woman. Um, and he thinks he's a woman. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I finally realized, oh my God, it's true, of course, yeah. Sir Lady Java. So then I'm like, so okay. So some time goes by, and they hired a trumpet player, a great big football-looking guy, about 6'4", and 2-something, 30, 40, 50 pounds. Right. And he just got out of jail for murder. What? He just got out of Quentin. And uh, uh, he was either paroled, or I don't know what happened. I was, we were all scared of him, but he seemed nice. But he was a big, big dude. So I'm now I've hung out a lot with Lawanda by now, and I've learned all of her speech patterns and the and her curse words and how she right. puts sentences together. So this guy sits down to me and he says, "Where well, I'm having a drink with him now at the bar," right. and he says, "Man, I'd like to get me a piece of that Java." <laughs> so I want to show him that I know what time it is. So I say, "Well, you ain't want none of that." 
just like she said it to me. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, that's a dude. He said, I don't give a fuck what it is. I'm going to hit that shit. <laughs> is that out? That's awesome. It was really totally out, man. I was like, oh my. I was so young. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> did you? Did that knock the letter off of your sweater? Oh, right? yeah. It totally knocked the letter off my sweater. <laughs> I was totally disillusioned. I didn't know what went on in prison. You know, I didn't know all this stuff. Well, yeah, it was, you know, that's, you know. Oh, that's something else. So when... After that, how did you end up in California? Like, how old were you when you ended up in uh, living in Oakland? Because oh, I know okay. you were in Sacramento for a while first, right? I was born in Sacramento, and I stayed there on and off. I did all that traveling with my father as a child. And after high school, I actually finished my high school in Concord, California. Oh, boy. And I went right on the road with Vince Garaldi, because oh, uh, wow. Colin Bailey wow. was getting very busy with Joe Pass, and I, oh, okay. I played. And it was great. It was wow. a trio, a jazz yeah, trio. Yeah. I loved it. Oh, I played yeah, with yeah. Vince for 15 or 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was, he's fantastic. Oh, he's fantastic. That oh, he could swing like Wooden oh, yeah. Kelly. He's oh, just a totally yeah. killer. And a good guy with a horrible temper. The oh, worst really? temper of anybody I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I mean, what the, so you were playing that Charlie Brown music like every I, night? I, I've done several of those TV shows. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we made a record that just came out recently, but we made it way back then, of got course. You, you got know. you. But, uh, um, yeah, um, what's happened? So I was playing with Vince, and I moved to the Bay Area. I moved to Vallejo. I, uh, oh, okay, because that's where the, the Sly Stone and those guys are from, right? Absolutely. And yep. were they, did you know them there? Were you? Were I, I, I didn't know, I played a couple of gigs with Sly with Bobby Freeman, but I didn't right. know him because he was a disc jockey right. and he was, seemed right. very important. Right, gotcha, and, and, gotcha. Uh, and he hadn't had Sly in the Family Stone yet, but I did a couple of gigs with him. Elks Club in Concord, California with Sly Stone and Bobby Freeman. <laughs> and Bobby Freeman had the hit to swim out. I don't know it. I don't, I, and another one called Betty Lou got a new pair of shoes. Wow. Yeah, funky mother. So it, they were like regional hits. The worldwide, worldwide hits. hits. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't and, know. And, I should uh, know them. Yeah, he's he from Tennessee. Me. He was a real soul singer. Right. And his show contained the hits, but it also contained a lot of great soul music that I'm a hog for you, baby. Oh, oh sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, it was ridiculous, you know. And sometimes I played with Joe Tex through that. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Now that was a show, right? I mean, that was a big band. There were lots of hits. That was like a jazz band. No, we, we did that, right? Not, it was when you saw him live. But I played with him with a little like organ, bass, guitar, and drums. Right. And okay. and he had a, a couple of girls singing backup. That right. was it. Yeah. And we rehearsed that day, but yeah. we already knew the tunes. Yes. Did he have to show me a man? Show me a man. And and yeah, totally that beat, man, to everything. And then he had a hit out called "Hold On to uh, uh, Hold On to the, What You Got," because uh, you can uh, you better hold on to what you got. Right. And that was a great ballad that I used to really dig when I was in high school. And he had another one, Skinny Legs and all, I forget. Right, that right. One, but yeah, whatever. That's awesome. Yeah, but it was great. Yeah, we only did right. two nights, but we did it at the Cong Condor Club. Wow. Yeah. And uh, there was just so much work in the Bay Area. Uh, I so used you're to talking like 1970? This was more like 66. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A lot of changed from 1966 Ooh, to 1970. Hey, I used right? to play with, I played, me and Garaldi played with Jerry Garcia. He joined us on several gigs. Really? At the Pier Street Annex on Lombard wow. Street in San Francisco. Yes. Well, how do you like that? Yeah, man. It was great. I mean, it was like, I didn't really know the guy. He just seemed like some stone dude, and we were stoned. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, hey, man, Jerry Garcia is going to play with us tonight. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. I don't even know if the Grateful Dead was good. It must have been. I, yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't know, yeah. man. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, but through Garaldi, I'd end up playing with Mose Allison. It was an incredible experience. Right. And we worked in those days, and the... And the reason I moved to Oakland, I moved to Vallejo and I worked, I had a four night a week organ gig with a big band on Sunday. I organized all this. I, this is no kidding. I, I walked into a bar to get a beer and the guy said, uh, you talk like a musician. I said, I am. He said, uh, can you bring me a trio? $30 a piece a night. That's 90 a week for three nights a week. And, and that's like 40 years ago and it still pays that. And Yeah. <laughs> well, so does, so does the festival we're playing tonight. <laughs> Anyway, like, you know, like, yeah, everything went up except yeah, for our wages. Exactly. And, uh, um, and then a big band on Sunday, and I had everybody, Maynard Ferguson came in there to play with right. me because he knew one of the guys in the band. Got you. And all of these guys came through, and uh, it was amazing, and I right. really learned to play jazz on that gig. 
because this guitar player was really knew a million tunes and he taught me and I had to listen to all those guitar jazz records. Right. Every one of them. All and, the West and, Montgomery and Grant oh, Green. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, all of them. Yeah. All of them. Uh, Herb Ellis. Yeah, yeah. Barney, everybody. Yeah, West Barney Ken Kessel. Bar sure. Barney Kessel, Kenny Burrell, uh, um, uh, even Attila Zoller, who I ended up playing with in New York oh, years wow. and years. Everybody, you know, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, Jim Hall. Oh, wow. Um, and... Uh, we played nothing but straight ahead jazz, organ style. So right. we did all of those Jimmy Smith big band sure, hits. Sure, sure, yeah. You know, somebody wrote out the down by the riverside. And, oh, it was an amazing time. But also, there was we worked seven nights a week in the Bay Area. Me and Vince Ladiano, uh, Eddie Marshall, and Gaylord yeah, Burch. Yeah, Eddie. Seven nights a week. Eddie Moore, wow. <clears throat> another great drummer. Yeah. And uh, you never, you had to hide from the phone. No computers, no cell phones. Right. You had to hide from the phone to get nights off. That's how much work there was. Wow. And, it, and it paid 50 to 100 a sure, night. Sure, you were living large. Yeah, but then, yeah. I tell was. me what happened, though, when you and Paul had been playing together. I mean, you guys really, Paul Jackson, you yeah. really created, I mean, I have to say you definitely created a style. I mean, you know, people talk a lot about, like, jazz, jazz fusion and funk and all these things, but... Really, it doesn't ultimately really mean anything because what, but but what you guys did was you really put this very I hate to use the term organic because it's just such a it was organic say, though. but it's just something that it, that naturally happened. You didn't have a mission statement. No, you no, didn't no, have no, people no. investing in you. You were just like, well, I really like this stack sound and I really like this Art Blakey thing and 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 I'm just gonna play stuff and then, I mean you know tell me about like. It, it's. I'm just assuming it's just something that that just kind of happened because that was still music that that had that balance. And I, and I think you can you can maybe disagree with me if you like, but I think that all the great music, at least the music that I end up really, really uh, being drawn towards, is a music that's got that balance of the visceral and the intellectual, where it'll make you dance and it will bring it'll bring both men and women to your shows. Right and. At the end of the night, every you've ticked off all the boxes you can. You yeah. know, what I mean, I feel like that. That's what you guys did. And and tell me something like, because I'm oh, I've always been curious. Like, how did it get from being you guys playing in like these gigs in Oakland, even though you know you had a vibrant scene in the whole Bay Area? How did it get from that to be like the drummer for Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters? Did you have the Headhunters first? No, Herbie first. Oh, okay. Yeah. What happened was this. That, that's a great question. And and you pretty much got the answer. You pretty much got it right. Here's what actually happened. Our, Paul and I had a very, very profound, deep friendship. Right. And our love for each other as buddies is what created that sound. Right. We seem to have this invisible understanding where we wouldn't even have to count a tune off, we could just start playing. Well, you just hear it, it's obvious. And we just, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and well, I mean, we listened to all of the funk you, that we mentioned earlier, all Ray Charles pouring yeah. out the box all the time, James Brown till, you you know, the neighbors went crazy, uh, uh, all the stacks, Volt, another right, great label, right, right. Uh, you know, just every piece of funk, but also Miles Davis from the Black Hawk until the Miles Smiles that, and sure. Nefertiti. All of Coltrane, before Giant Steps, when he was with Miles, right the way, the same stuff you've listened to. Right. Wayne, who's in the lobby, I saw the hotel this oh, morning. that's awesome. Yeah, I, I said, let's chat together. And he said, maybe tonight at midnight or something. I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. I, 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 if I'm still awake. Yeah. But, but uh, and, and Paul, okay, now here's the kicker. Paul played upright bass. He didn't play electric bass. He didn't grow up playing electric bass. Gotcha. And he worked at Sherman and Clay Music Store. Oh, get out of here. The piano play, place on Broadway. Exactly. And wow. he was the general manager. What? Oh, that's incredible. He, we, we shared an apartment in East Oakland uh, that his father rented for us because both of our girlfriends threw us out. Okay. And from, from hanging, because we hung so much together, the girls threw us out. <laughs> from, you know, he was over at my house all the time. I was over at his house, and pretty right. soon they went nuts and got rid of us. You guys had an agenda, but you, you didn't know it. We had yeah. an agenda, yeah, but didn't yeah, know yeah, it. Yeah, we were yeah. just... Young cats yeah. having fun, and uh, uh, he put he he snuck out. Uh, he had a truck, so he snuck a B three. 
and a Leslie out of the warehouse of Sherman and Clay. Uh -huh. He didn't steal it. We brought it back, of course, and left it in the house for two years. Uh -huh. <laughs> it had cigarette burns in it and everything when he took it back. Anyway, uh, and then he also brought with him an electric bass and put it in the corner and didn't touch it. And we were playing with Bobby Hutcherson uh, and uh, Woody Shaw and a guy named Hotep on piano, and Paul played upright uh -huh. bass, and, and then Paul also played with Vince Guaraldi, played the big bass, and we were playing all over, and we had a thing, something called the Jazz Statesman or something, a trio, with a guy named Al Tanner who could really play the blues, oh my right. God, a great piano player, and uh, kind of a guy like Hampton Hawes, sort of. Right, oh, I love Hampton Hawes. So yeah, do I, so do I. Yeah, he could really make oh, you feel man, it, right? fantastic, yeah. And uh, one day, I was goofing around with the drums, and um, Paul picked up the electric bass, the Fender bass, and took it out and plugged it in. The first time, it sat there for a year in the music room. Wow. And he started playing exactly the way he plays. Really? And, and I started playing exactly the way I played yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we looked at each other and went, and the first thing I said, if you're gonna play bass like that, you might as well play guitar. Right, right. And, 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 uh, and he said, play one of those crazy beats uh, that you do. And I did. And right then, we both knew. Yeah. And immediately. Cha-ching. Yeah. <laughs> that night, we played yeah. with Pete Escovito, or I think it was Coke Escovito. Uh -huh. And we played this style. Yeah. He used to play with Coke and a big bass. Okay, right. And, and play the Latin kind of, you right, know. Right, right. But this, we totally did, you know. And this, we hadn't heard the Tower of Power yet. Right. So, but it was... Yeah. But uh, I'd heard a couple of, uh, uh, there was a drummer named Ray Torres from Texas. Yeah. One of the greatest drummers I yeah, ever. Yeah, he was in Sacramento for a long time. He, like, he, rockin' yeah. Ray Torres. Good right? rockin' Ray. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yep. I think the funkiest I've ever heard. Wow. Or one of, I mean, on par with any of your our favorite. Right. Clyde, whoever. Right, Bernard I mean, oh or, my or God. Wow. That's and you really had a way about him. He had a thing the way he made things feel and the way he moved the rhythm. It was very different. I was like, right. wow. So I'd heard him play a 16th note kind of thing, but it wasn't solid the way I did it. It was more 8th and 16s and. But and he'd move in and out of the rhythm, kind of like Elvin Jones, having never heard Elvin Jones. Right, right. Not that sophisticated, himself, but something like it. It was right. amazing. Right. And uh, he taught me some stuff, and then I came up with my thing. Right. And then uh, a, a little while later, we were playing at a club next door to the On Broadway, where one band was on one wall, uh -huh. and then there was a thin wall, and the other band was on the, the stage, was in the other room. Right, so right. it was back to back. Oh. And it was the Tower of Power. Wow. I never heard them before, and they weren't popular. Nobody knew them, and there was only about eight people in the club. And Paul and I were over there playing our slick shit, and, we, and he said, yeah, there's a bunch of guys with horn cases and everything, so there must be a big band. Right. We opened the door, and they started playing that stuff they play, and I almost fainted. And, and there was only about <laughs> six people in the club. And before wow. the tune was over, there was a hundred people in there dancing like... <sighs> wow, that's awesome. And, and Garibaldi was killing. And then yeah. Garibaldi came next door and heard me, and, he, and uh, when I heard Garibaldi, I went, what?! And then he came next door and heard me and went, what? I'm sure he did. Well, yeah. no, we both yeah. bugged out yeah. and we're still really good friends. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. I love he's Garibaldi. A he's, he's a brilliant a drummer. Yeah, he's and he came up, oh, he's oh, fantastic, man. man. That shit that he did, forget it. Yeah. James man. Brown loved him, you know? Man. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Ridiculous. Totally, man. So then how did you guys hook up with Herbie then eventually? How did that whole thing happen? Paul went in, uh, up to uh, Lake Tahoe to play with little Anthony and the Imperials, and he hated the gig. Right. He just really didn't have nice... I've never heard Paul Jackson really put too many people down. He's not that kind of a person. Right. But he was trashing this gig. He hated it. <laughs> he'd leave late, and he'd get there late, and he'd yeah, dress yeah, yeah. shitty. You know, He just didn't like it. So David Rubinson was up there doing something, and he walked in and heard Paul right. playing. And he recommended Paul to audition for Herbie Hancock. Right. So Paul auditioned and Herbie liked him. And Harvey Mason was getting ready to do this record, Headhunters. Right. Because he was the, Harvey was the studio guy of the day, really. And right? he was also innovative and brand oh, new yeah. on his own. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Way of, way, fantastic. And he would come from Boston. He had all this jazzy shit. That uh -huh. no, and he had this 
studio drum sound. I didn't even know about this kind of sound. Well, those right. tom-toms that everybody's still doing today, right. kind of. Yeah. I mean, he was the first, one of the first, that I, I never heard a drum sound like that before. I played the drums that he, I was at the Headhunters date when he did oh, Chameleon, Sly, I was right there. Wow. And I played his drums and they were tom-toms with no heads on right. them. Real exactly. long tom-toms exactly. and weird. Do, do, do. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And real, the snare was so tight you couldn't even roll on right. it, you know what right. I mean? Like, I was like, man. And he played very light. He was he didn't play real powerful. I'm not saying he can't. He didn't. Right. But right. he knew where he hit the cymbal, what it was going to sound like in the booth. Right. He's an amazing artist. Yeah. And uh, and he was just swinging his ass off on this record date. And I was like, wow, this is great. So Herbie started calling the pad to speak to Paul. Right. And Paul's never there. He's Mr. Social Insane. You know, he's just hanging all the time, all the time. So I'd end up talking to Hancock all the time. And we'd have all of these, he didn't even know I played drums. We'd have, I never said anything about it. We'd just have all of these amazing conversations right, right. about politics and, you know, uh, whatever. And the universe or, you sure, know, all this kind sure, of stuff. Of course. So, um, the universe. Yeah, the universe. And um, one day he goes like, hey man, are you that white guy that I heard playing with Woody Shaw playing jazz? I was trying to play like Elvin and Tony. You know right. my jazz shit, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Same thing I'm still doing now. And I... Finally, it became me, you know, and so I, I'm no longer trying to play like those guys, but I, I found my own little way. But um, he said, well, if Paul tells me you can play some your own style of funk. And I said, well, you, I, I, I was afraid to say yes. I said, well, you'll have to hear me sometime right. and make up your own. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I was afraid of him, you know, it was Herbie Hancock. I was intimidated. So he said, uh, well, why don't you and Paul come over tomorrow or something and play with me over at David Rubinson's office. I have a Fender Rhodes over there. And I said, okay. So I went over there and we played and I started playing, ex uh, well, the first thing I did was try to play just like Tony Williams. Right, right, I had a little 18-inch yeah, yeah, kick and yeah. my cymbals way up, the K cymbals oh, way wow. high in the air. That was the war cry. And he wanted to hear the, the hi-hat and the big bass drum, right? Well, well, yeah, and, and he, he stopped me. I played all my Tony licks and he's, I've even played my Tony licks in front of Tony. It's just absolutely sick and stupid. But uh, um, And he stopped and went, if I wanted Tony Williams, he's one of my good buddies, I'd just call him. I want to hear what you're thinking. So we put a pillow up against the front head or something that they had. I think right. it was a pillow uh, uh, off the couch. And I played the stuff I played on actual proof, this type of thing that Paul right. and I had been doing. for oh. That linear the linear, yeah, 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 the linear deal. And then when I go to the symbol, I, I, I didn't play funk licks. I played jazzy. Oh, I played the shit that I play. Yeah, know? but still, but the thing you're 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 belittling what you did because really what you did was really super important to a hell of a lot of people because what you did was you took that jazz sensibility in terms of how you can play linearly as a drummer and improvise over something, yet you you couldn't escape. The feel yeah. of Al Jackson yeah. was always in it. You're right. Or Clyde Stubblefield was always in it. it was, yeah. So you took that whole thing and you loosened it up and you put it in a situation that was improvisational uh -huh. as opposed to a situation that was song-oriented. Exactly. Or orchestratedly song-oriented. Well, actual proof is about blowing. Right. And totally. so it was a completely different yeah. thing. And I, yeah. I was very inspired by uh, two of my heroes that people never talk about when me uh, when is Roy Haynes and Roy McCurdy. Oh, Roy McCurdy. Roy McCurdy is nasty, man. He's yeah, yeah. ridiculous. Sure, and he's funky sure. and he oh, can yeah. do all of it. Yeah, but he, in a lot of ways, he's kind of a guy that would be in between... Um, who was the guy that played with Horace Silver? Paul uh, Humphreys. Paul Humphreys. Paul Humphreys and then, then Roy McCurdy made it a little funkier, but it was still really jazz. And then he also came, was, well, Roy McCurdy was also side. into Elvin and Jack right. and Tony. Oh, so sure. he modernized yeah. his thing at one point Yeah, you during the it. country preacher time. I saw right, a lot right. of live sure. shows and yeah, he yeah. really modernized. I was like, wow. Yeah. Because he was kind of a bebopper before that, and then he hit this right. other thing. But sure. this guy can really play, oh, man. Oh, fantastic. Snap, yeah. crackle, fantastic. and pop. He's ridiculous. Yeah. And... And that's kind of, but yeah. So then you played that stuff, and Herbie oh, Hancock must have just been like, wow, this is. Yeah, he went, that's it. He, he stopped playing at one point. We only played for 10 minutes. Right. And he went, 
be on the plane Monday. We're going to Chicago. And he walked out. <laughs> wow. And I said to Paul, does that mean we have the gig? Or does that mean I have the gig? Right. And Paul goes, I don't know. Wow. So then we went home and I and uh, and uh, uh, some guy named Dennis Rodriguez, a, mo- a road manager, called and said, sent me an itinerary, and that was it. Wow. Man. I played wow. for almost five. I played for five right. years. Right. Five years. Yeah. It was great, you know. And I got. I really liked it, but then it got. We really were trying to come up with all. It was wonderful. It was. I can't even explain. It was so great. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you, 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 and Paul were on top of the world. We're I mean, on top you of were the like world. Like people, everyone, buddy wanted to have you on. Oh yeah, your records. What was oh. that story about you go down to do a record for uh, Al well, Jarreau or something? Like, is that tellable? Well, is that a tellable? I think story? it's tellable. You gotta I, tell I, it. It's no. one of the best I've ever heard. Well, okay. Um, they. Uh, you could give them the the. Uh, the uh, cleaned up Reader's Digest version. I will. Or the slightly... Uh, slightly... Uh, slightly impolite. Risk it, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Paul got a, a, a... You can give him the Salinger version as opposed to the, the uh, Bukowski version. Right, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paul said, hey, man, Al Jarreau wants us to come down and make a record and possibly tour with him. Right. And I'm like, sure, okay, let's go. So we flew down to L.A. And when we got there... Uh, our friend Peter Robinson was playing one of the keyboards, but it was a real L.A. type of thing. Right. These so guys, you're like 1979, 1980, 1977, I think. Oh, 77. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, well, yeah, 77, I'd say six or seven, 76 right. or seven. Um, we were still doing Herbie tours, but sure. not as much. Hancock right. had made some money, and he was kind of doing di- VSOP was starting, and right. all of these different things. So, anyway, uh, we go down there. And uh, it's a lot of reading music, and uh, it's very L.A., it's very professional. Now, Al Jarreau's not there yet, so the band is going to rehearse us. So at that time, there was a lot of the so-called rock stars around and stuff, so they had a drink cart in some of these studios. This is true. So they can't, Paul loved to drink in those days. And uh, they brought a drink cart through, and he pulled out a bottle of something off the cart, and drank it at the rehearsal and he got drunk and so he's telling uh, so Al Jarreau shows up I already know this shit I already know it's going to go way left I'm just not (laughs) sure which way but it's going to go left I know Paul Jackson very well and uh, Al and we're trying to learn the tunes now the reading for me wasn't that hard I didn't really have to read much it was a very simple drum part you just had to pretty much play a groove and go home and we'd have the gig right and I think the gig paid like a hell of a lot more than Herbie paid us or so I, this was kind of important to me I wanted to make some bread alright so we start to go through the tunes and Paul would be like he couldn't read it and he could read music but he was drinking too much so and he'd say, like, hey, man, check this out. And he'd do one of his bass lines. Hey, baby. And he'd sing, come on, mama. Let's get down. You know, and all this bullshit. And, Al, and, and he did it about 10 times. And, he, and, and Al would go, like, well, that's great, Paul. And, he, and before he could finish his sentence, Paul, oh, you think that's great? Check this out. Six, eight. And then he'd make up all this shit. I'm going down in the alley. You know. And he just wouldn't stop. Because he's a big dude, and once you get him rolling, and uh, and uh, you can see the band is afraid that Al, his boys are they're worried about their gig. This right. this, this sure, is not sure. going well. Right, the whole thing right. is a waste. Yeah. So Al Jarreau is sitting in a little desk that's like the kind of desk that you have when you're in eighth grade. Right. They had a couple of these desks sure, in there like why? that with the arm that's on ridiculous. it. You know, I don't yeah. know. It was there though. Yeah. And a little wood part with, you know... The chair is attached to the desk, to the writing platform, right? Yeah, and it's like you're stuck in there. It's hard to get out. Oh, yeah. So Al's sitting in that desk, and he's making notes about what's going on, you know. And you can already see that by the demeanor that we ain't getting this gig. Because I'm Paul's friend, I ain't getting it either, so I'm pissed off. Yeah. But I'm playing it off. I'm, you know, how you hope, or maybe we can sneak by with this. Right. By now, Paul's like... He's there's no way to deal with him. He's out of control, and he's like, uh, and then pretty soon Al goes like, Paul says, "Man, this shit ain't funky. This shit ain't funky. This is some bullshit. This is that white shit, L.A. shit. You know he's going on and on. I'm like, oh my god, we're fucked now, and and like so Al's row is sitting in a desk, and he says to Paul. Well, I don't think this is going to really work, Paul. Maybe we just better hang it up. You guys are really great musicians, and we love you. And 
But, you know, I think we better try to do something else. And Paul is standing in front of him and says, oh, well, fuck it, I didn't want to play this bullshit anyway, and turns around and blows a huge fart right in his face. I swear to God, that's true. <laughs> and, we were, and then so an hour or two later, we're on the plane riding back to Oakland, and, I met, and we're in silence, and he's still drinking on the plane, and I'm not even speaking to him. I'm sitting right next to him. He's like, ah, oh, come on, motherfucker, it'll be okay. We'll get another gig. <laughs> He'll be pissed off. just what happens I mean you know it happens you know you see somebody who's like, I'm not talking to that guy anymore because the guy you played with for years he yeah have, and then the next week you end up on a gig together oh and then it's just like oh why wasn't I talking to you oh I'm sorry oh yeah totally oh yeah exactly. that night we were friends yeah, again exactly. after I had a few drinks exactly yeah. I'm like you were oh, right that shit wasn't funky fuck it and uh Back to Esther's Orbit Room for $35 or something right, like that. Right, right. And Esther's Orbit Room is still there, I think. I is think it? if you take the BART through West Oakland, you st- it's, I'm sure it's not operational. Wow. But you, the sign was still there last uh, I saw, which is an interesting kind well, of situation. Well, you know, when, you know? when we went to Japan, nobody had seen patchwork jeans. Remember those jean caps? Oh, yeah, yeah. Window pane, right? Yeah. yeah. And as soon as we got there, they... They, within a week, they were, the stores were full. That's how the Japanese were then. And on Swing Journal magazine was a picture of Herbie, me, and Paul. And all you saw was New Ruthie's Red Duck Inn, Oakland, barbecue, the word barbecue, uh, <laughs> Esther's Orbit Room, on Broadway, right. Soul Dave's, right, all of this right, stuff. Right. And I was like, wow. Wow, this is it, weird. This is was like... In Japan? In, and it was like four days into the tour. They flew somebody out and got this together. And, and and the stores were filled within a week with the patchwork jeans, and wow. so we had such huge crowd. Like we were kind of like stars. You were stars, and, right? And we, I mean, you you essentially went like you told me once. You went from playing Esther's Orbit Room, yeah, to being on chartered planes, yeah. playing these giant festivals. You once told me about a gig you did in Hawaii, with yeah, Sly Stone, you Chichin sat, Chong, Chichin and, Chai, like all yeah. that kind of stuff. Tower and, Power, yeah. I mean, but that's how it happens. You know, you go. People don't understand like this whole crazy music hustle. They think, oh, Mike Clark, he's the drummer from Herbie Hancock, which means like you're always the drummer from Herbie Hancock, you're right? Always riding high. You always have. They don't understand the ups. No. Because they don't have any idea what you train for, and then what happens oh. when you get stuck out there. Oh. And, and so, but you know, we're just—I'm glad, and you're always glad when all of these crazy currents add up to some somebody like you and Paul having your say and being allowed to a milieu in which you can to, you can contribute and and be your link in this giant chain. You know, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time, but I worked very hard, so I was prepared. Yeah, yeah. You know, I practiced not just I didn't practice chops. I did some, right. but well, I you, you got to learn how to play. I mean, of course, yeah. but I but I practiced blowing, playing, right. improvising beats, having my own I didn't want to sound like a I, I was unable to sound like these other guys. I couldn't sound like them. Even if I knew right. the beats, I didn't sound right. Yeah. So I had to, right away, I thought I have to have my own style, and it just sort of came out. Well, you just, it developed. I mean, it, it was going to happen regardless. You know. And, and you, could, you can try to not allow it to happen at your own peril. Right, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, I know. I've done that. Exactly. I, I've made myself suffer for yeah, that. Sometimes you need to go sit in a cul-de-sac for a while, you know. <laughs> Indeed. You know, you were. You, I, I've got to get ready for the gig, but sure. you were saying something. We should close with this, I guess, because I found it interesting. I've been doing a ton of clinics at colleges for five years. Right. And you were talking about jazz, funk, rhythm and blues, whatever history, the history of the music we love is now taught in the college. And what I find two things about that interesting. Of course, the music has right. morphed. So these guys sound like the guys on the records because they didn't get to hear the live guys. Right. Which is not their fault. No, no. It's, and it's, I didn't get to hear a lot of the live guys. Well, I mean, you got to hear a hell of a kid. lot more of them. I, of course. Of you course. caught the tail yeah, end of all exactly, of that. So yeah. you did get to yeah. hear them. It, it shows up in your music. But the thing is, is these guys, I asked them, uh, the students, why are you doing this? Why are you, I just need to, I just want to know. You, I'm, I'm, I'm no judgment. Just why are you studying jazz in a college? Right, and they tell me. I said uh, they say, well, because I want to have a 
a degree so that I could teach and get health benefits. Now, this is a guy 18 years old. Wow. Many guys. Wow, that's heavy. Says, it is heavy. That's heavy. And I'm like, do you love this music? Because guys like you and me have no choice. We play it because we love it. Right, right. That's why we're well, still playing true. it. It's a calling. You know, you don't wake up one morning and decide that your life is metaphorically going to be pushing a van uphill with the brakes on while people throw shit at you. Yeah, no kidding. Nobody decides to do that. Yeah. You have to really love it to want to do that. You really it's do, It's a music man. hustle, right? Yeah, we risk our lives flying and driving. I mean, this ain't easy. Oh, yeah, and no. At my age, I'm 66 hey, now. I'm, I get tired. Yeah, of course. You know, and it's like I... I didn't used to. I could go for a long time. But but anyway, uh, I mean, I'm constantly taking vitamins, trying not to get sure. sick on the road. Of course. Oh my God. But I still do this for the music. I see people in the lobby of this hotel politicking and trying to kiss up to a manager and an agent or this or that. But, I, I you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a good businessman, but the, that's important. But the thing is, is I still do this because I love the music. Yeah. That's why I'm here. Of course. You know, and, and I need to work, but hey, sure. you know, so when I see the, uh, uh, and I think a lot of the, the old tradition of, of verbally and musically handing down things, like I had to right. go deal with Art Blakey and if he was in a bad mood or a good mood or I had to buy him drinks right. to find out something about yeah. him and sure. why he did what, you sure. know. And I would listen to them every night. I'd right. find a way to get in the right. club for free and listen right. to those guys. So I have an idea, anyway, of what was going on. But if you get it right from a school, and probably the teacher in that school didn't live it. Right. So right. I don't know. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with I think it's great that people are studying music in music school. Sure. I didn't sure. get to do that. No, I, I didn't you get didn't, to do either. You know. No. So, but, but there's also... You know, obviously, none of us get we we don't get to choose where we come from. That right, that yeah, is just okay. a part of what happens I to us. Yeah. And you know, you and I didn't get to choose the fact that you know we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of right. whatever you want. But but you know, in my case, I had a mom who played guitar and listened to all these great old blues guys and knew some of them. So I I so those guys would be playing in my house sometimes. Oh, that's you know, great. I would see those guys and right. I knew them and and I grew up around great guitar players and I could say, "Hey, can you show me this thing? Can you show me that thing?" You know. Right. And and I really feel like there is in terms of us being musicians, you know, it's kind of like we're little links in this really big chain going Indeed. back for for thousands of years mm. to our first ancestors in some village in the Kalahari Desert banging things together, making sounds, and, and the whole job is like to, to take everyone in the group, whether it be a tribe, a community, a country, uh, your family, to take those people out of their left brain for, yeah, for a little it. bit. Take them out of that stress to, to, to basically show them all of these incredibly beautiful things that we're capable of as people. And and if you're and you tell that story to them, you tell their story back to them because you are part of them. Yeah. And then I think what ends up wow. happening is is when you start to treat uh, the music schools and, and don't get me wrong, these people are learning. I mean, they play circles around me. These kids. Yeah, me too, man. Are you kidding? Yeah. But you know what? <clears throat> the thing is, the problem I feel about it is that when you take that away, when when you're you're putting this music education into what you can actually teach, it's like. Well, so you're teaching architecture, basically, mm. or you're teaching dentistry or something, that these things that have, that have these very tangible, real measurements to them. And, and sure, you can do that. You can, teach, uh, you can teach the giant steps changes, or you can take right. something and teach it in a purely intellectual, nuts and bolts manner. But, but mm. the real thing about that record is not those changes. It's, it's yeah. the story that, that John Coltrane is telling Using that as a vehicle and the passion and all of the history and all of his life experiences and and he's telling a story and you know we all have a story to tell. I'm not saying I'm not saying that these kids that are in these colleges don't have a story to tell. They do have a story to tell, but I feel like they're being put in a situation where they're not being given the Hmm. the history and and the visceral experience of connecting with people that are outside of the musician community. Because we historically, wow. as musicians, were part of the community at large, and we serve the community. Yeah, to create value in our community. Exactly. You, you know, I know you're exactly. right. That's you very, know, and that's the problem that I have with it. And and but I think that all that means is that you know it's not linear. It means that 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 music thing is going to go some to some other 
other function, and musicians will be serve a different function. Um, yeah, the world and still is serve the community. You have to, but you have to serve the community. Yeah, that's yeah, you do. You absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, long story short, that's what you and Paul were doing when you invented that way of playing. You were serving the community because you were saying, "Look, here's some funky stuff you can dance to, and it feels good." But then, and that's going to affirm you can, your 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 left brain. But there's going to be all of this stuff. I mean, affirm your right brain. But there's going to be all this stuff that's intellectual that will affirm your left brain and you get all those things ticking at the same time and we're all in it together yeah the guys on the bandstand playing the people in the audience the people, people who book it the people who sell the records everyone is a part of this culture and we're all connected and everyone is contributing but when you take that to only being the musicians and the only reason people are there is because of some educational uh thing or or some kind of a, a grant writing proposal uh -huh. or you know you have sponsors if that's the only way that you can get people to the show then how you, it's kind of becomes anemic the way that we serve well, the community. Well you, know, you know indeed and also like a, a, a very famous drummer said to me the other day when they took the blues out of jazz I, I stopped wanting to be part of this right. deal. Now, I'm not saying I don't really lament what's going on now, and I don't hate what's going on now. And there's certainly a lot of really talented guys, and God, they can really play yeah. now. Jesus, sure. the technical aspect has gone to a point that I it's confusing. Yeah. Me. Oh, it's confusing to me too. I, I mean, I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah. What? But to you me, know, odd three four is an odd time signature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm good in four four. Pretty good. <laughs> And even that can get weird, you know what I mean? Like, but uh, hey, I'm gonna go get ready okay, for this show. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Man. Great. Yeah, mother. Good to see you. They don't say that's not show. All right.